looking at the second half of the chapter today. And while you're doing that, I was handed a a note. Uh, Whoever brought Ingrid Boyden today to the worship service, would you please meet her in the cry room just behind here? We have uh, a need there as well. So whoever brought Ingrid, if you would step back to the cry room, we'd appreciate it. All right, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 34. I'd like you to keep your Bible open to that passage. We're going to refer to it as we go through the message. But let me just, again, pray for us as we begin. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we thank you for the privilege we have to hear directly from you. It's your word that has power. It's your word that opens our eyes to see the truth of the world around us and the things that you have done. It's your word that convicts us, that challenges us, and encourages us. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. That as we listen to what Jesus said in this Sermon on the Mount, that it would hit us in a very profound way too. We ask it in his name. Amen. This week I was reading an article in the New York Daily News that said that Americans are a stressed out bunch. Dr. Paul Rosh said there's no question that Americans are experiencing more stress than ever. And they weren't just referring to the Christmas season when everybody's rushing around trying to get things ready. They were talking about stress in general in our lives and that there are a variety of factors that contribute to that. One of those is technology. The technology that was supposed to make life easier has actually added to our stress in many cases. Because we live in a sped-up society. We have access to information all the time, you know, and with cell phones and all the social media and, you know, people take their laptop on vacation or everywhere they go. I mean, people are connected. They're never unplugged. They're always in touch or connected with one another through the different types of media that we have access to. And the result of that is that there's very little downtime. Very little time to step back and to relax. We suffer from information overload. Work can be a stressor in people's lives. Seven out of ten workers say that job stress is causing frequent health problems for them. Uh, We're living in a time when employers are asking for more, trying to be as efficient as possible, and so your workload probably has increased if you are working. And for those that are unemployed, it's a different set of issues and stressors in their life, but that all of us feel. There may be problems on the home front. Divorce and stepfamilies are commonplace. Marriages are hurting. Children are hurting. And we see that. There are economic struggles. We have persistent high unemployment, a sluggish economy. And those who own a home have seen values fall as well as those who have retirement funds have seen them diminish. And so when we come to a passage like the one we're going to look at today where Jesus tells us, do not worry. I mean, that sounds good, but we kind of wonder, is that even possible? You know, do not worry. I mean, we got all kinds of worries out there. And Jesus comes and he says, do not worry about your life. You can go ahead and put that up. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. How can Jesus say that? What is it that we are to do that would make that difference in our life? Well, Jesus in this passage is going to say that we need to have our priorities in order. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. You see, what Jesus offers here is a different way to deal with the stress and the anxiety in our life. And there are four questions I'd like us to think about this morning. Number one, where is our treasure? Let's take a look at verses 19 to 21. Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the Greek in which the New Testament is written, this command is actually even stronger in the way it is put. Jesus is saying, stop storing up treasure on earth. It's a command that implies that you are doing it, now stop it. And that's a pretty direct statement. And when I think about the audience to which Jesus was speaking, that challenges me even more. If Jesus would say this to first century farmers and shepherds and fishermen and tradesmen in their time to stop trying to accumulate stuff and put your treasure here on earth, what would he say to us? I mean, you know, we would consider most of them as living as peasants by today's standards. And yet Jesus made this statement. Stop storing up treasure on earth. Why shouldn't we store up treasure here? Well, he gives us some reasons for that. Uh, One of those reasons is that it's not a wise investment. It's just not a good investment. Randy Alcorn, who's written a lot on the treasure principle and all of these kind of things, puts it even more bluntly. He says, we shouldn't do it because it's stupid. (laughs) You know, just think about what he's saying here. He tells us that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. It's an honest description of what life can be like in this world. You know, when we were moving toward winter here, you know, I opened my sweater drawer, I pulled out a sweater out of there, and you know, I lifted it up and there was a little hole in there. I think a moth got into one of my sweaters this summer, you know, and that that just happens. A nice garment can be ruined by a little insect. Or you think about how rust destroys. I had a friend who this week was telling me about his vehicle that needs to be replaced and basically old age and rust have taken its toll and kind of weakened everything about that vehicle. There's not much you can do. Things get old. They break down. Thieves can break in and steal. You know, when we look at uh, what happens in our world, it's not just a thief breaking in, but we've seen how the market can crash, how you can have a business reversal, how a fire or a flood or a foolish investment can take away everything that you had worked so hard to save in this life. And even if you do accumulate a large amount of money, you can't take it with you 
it's going to be passed on to someone else if you leave it behind. So be wise. Be wise about your investments and where you store your treasure. The second reason Jesus gives for that is that he also tells us in his word that it is dangerous. To store up treasure in this life is dangerous, spiritually speaking. In 1 Timothy 6.10, the scripture says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It can destroy someone's heart spiritually because it can lead you away from Christ. Jesus said that in this passage when he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our heart will follow and be drawn toward what we value. So do we value the things of the kingdom of God? Is that the priority of our life? Or is it the things of this world that we love? There's a story that comes from Baylor University. You probably may have heard about Baylor recently because uh, they have a very good football team this year and one of their athletes just won the Heisman Trophy. But Baylor University is down in Texas and it was started as a Christian university by Baptist missionaries. Early on in its history, there was a man who gave a very generous gift to that school to help build one of their buildings. And then this same man, later in life, lost everything he had in the market. A non-Christian friend came to him and said, You know, don't you wish that you had all that money back that you put into the school? And he replied, Not at all. It is all that I've saved. If I had kept that money, I would have lost it too. I'm thankful that I gave that building when I did. You see, what we give to the Lord will not be lost. Whether it is giving to missions or evangelism or to help the needy in our world or to support the local church or a Christian ministry, God sees that and He will reward it. He tells us not to store up treasure in this life, but to end it on ahead, if you will, to store up treasure in heaven. Secondly, where will we fix our eyes? Verses 22 to 23 talk about this. He tells us that the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What is it that makes someone's eyes good or bad? Well, it is what we are looking at that has that effect. What are we focusing on? What are we putting into our mind that has the effect of making our eyes good or bad? The things we we read, the things we watch on television, the things that we think about and focus on all have an influence on us for good or bad. We can read things that are edifying, that build us up in the faith, that help us to grow, or we can, you know, read things that really just express the world's values and kind of pull at our spiritual life and distract us from Christ. We can be hardened by sin and desensitized by the world that we live in. And the saddest person of all is a person whose eyes are so dark that he doesn't even see the sin in his life. He just doesn't see it. You know, even for the Christian, 
we can be pulled along by that. I liken it to driving on the freeway. Have you ever tried to drive on the freeway and stay at the speed limit? And you can feel sometimes like you're just going to get run over, you know, by the people that go flying by on the freeway. It's easier to just kind of go with the flow, isn't it? You just kind of go with the traffic and whatever everybody else is doing. You just kind of go along with it. And sometimes that's what happens in our Christian life too. The standards of the world that change and move begin to affect us too. And we no longer really hear and see what it is that Jesus is calling us to in terms of personal holiness, integrity, honesty. There was a time, for example, uh, when living together before marriage would have been taboo. Now it's common. The world's really changed on that. It's the exception almost for me to have a couple come in that are not living together and want to get married. Things have changed in that area. But that doesn't make it right. In the same way, you know, there was a time when with pornography it was not readily available. Now it can be accessed in someone's home through their computer. It can come right into where you are living in the privacy of your home. Again, these things are not right, but that's the way the world has gone. And it is pushing the boundaries all the time. Television tries to shock more, go for shock value, and it pushes the boundaries in terms of violence and immorality, the things that are part of it. What can we do? Well, this is why we need to guard our eyes and guard our heart and mind. One of my favorite verses in that regard is Philippians 4.8. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, have that be sort of the rating for what you watch. The things that are good, true, noble, right, pure. You know, that would, that would cut out a lot of stuff, wouldn't it, in our world if that was our focus. And even more, the writer of Hebrews tells us, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let's run the race that he has marked out for us. A third question Jesus raises here is, Whom will we serve? And we see that in verse 24. Whom will we serve? He tells us that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. You know, the context here again is that master-servant relationship that took place in Jesus' day when a servant would be expected to be loyal to their master and do what they asked. It doesn't quite work as well if we were to say, you know, you can't have two employers. Uh, You can. Some of you are maybe working two jobs right now. You can juggle those kind of things. But you can't have two masters because a master demanded absolute loyalty. And divided loyalty just won't work. But again, what's interesting to me here is the way that Jesus sets up this contrast. He sets up this contrast between God and money. God and money. 
he uses the word mammon, which was the Aramaic word for wealth. And again, you think about the context, the people that he was talking to and saying you can't serve both. You've got to make your choice on who comes first in your life. We can make wealth our God as well. In our world, we see that, where some people make money the focus of their life and they want to acquire as much as they can. But Jesus is saying, you can't give your heart to both. Either wealth will be a tool to serve Christ or it will be an idol that displaces Christ. Either it's going to be a tool that you will use to serve Christ or it will become an idol that displaces Christ. And there are examples in Scripture and in real life, in history as well as today, of godly men and women who have used their wealth to serve the Lord. And they have been a tremendous blessing to the work of the kingdom. God has given them the ability to earn money and to use that wealth accordingly, and it's just been huge in terms of blessing others and advancing the kingdom. But there are also people that are wealthy who have walked away from Jesus because of what they had. You know, the deception there can be that we don't feel like we really need God. Some people feel so secure with what they have that their security is in their wealth and they turn away from God. And there are examples the other way. There are poor people who have been so obsessed with having money, thinking money is the answer to all of life's problems, that they put their trust in that rather than trusting in God. And there are also poor people, like the widow in Scripture, who gave everything that she had to the Lord and will be blessed accordingly. The issue is not money per se. The issue is how we use it. And we see that over and over again in the Scripture. Just to give a little balance in this area and to look at some other passages or just to call your attention to it, the Scripture tells us that we are to provide for our families. In 1 Timothy 5.8 it says if, you know, if someone won't do that, if they won't provide for their own families, they're worse than an infidel. Uh, it is right for us to work and to uh, provide for our children. Secondly, we are not to be sluggards. We're not to be lazy and depend upon everybody else to supply what we need. And Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul said that if a man won't work, he shall not eat. You know, he was calling people to use the gifts that they had, to work hard with their hands, to provide. Even Paul worked as a tent maker because he didn't want that to be a stumbling block in his sharing the gospel with others. He didn't want people to think that he was in it just for the money. Thirdly, parents should save up for their children. Second Corinthians 12.14 talks about that. That is, it is right for parents to save up for their children, not children to provide for their parents. And finally, in Proverbs 13.22, the Scripture says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So there is a place to use that wealth in a way that will be a blessing to our children and our grandchildren. To pass on a heritage. But don't let money become your God. 
And in this world, I think all of us need to wrestle with that question, how much is enough? How much is enough? The issue again goes back to our heart that we cannot have two masters. Ben Patterson shares a story that I think kind of illustrates this too when we think about life and what these two gods can do in our life. Ben Patterson in his book, The Grand Essentials, says this, I have a theory about old age. I believe that when life has whittled us down, when joints have failed and skin has wrinkled and capillaries have clogged and hardened, what is left of us will be what we were all along in our essence. Exhibit A is a distant uncle. All his life he did nothing but find new ways to get rich. He spent his last years very comfortably, drooling and babbling constantly about the money he had made. And when life whittled him down to his essence, all there was left was raw greed. That is what he had cultivated in a thousand little ways over a lifetime. Exhibit B is my wife's grandmother. When she died in her mid-80s, she had already been senile for several years. And what did this lady talk about? The best example I can think of is when we asked her to pray before dinner. She would reach out and hold the hands of those sitting beside her. And a broad smile would spread across her face and her dim eyes would fill with tears as she looked up to heaven. And her chin would quaver as she poured out her love to Jesus. That was Edna. Edna in a nutshell. She loved Jesus and she loved people. She couldn't remember our names, but she couldn't keep her hands from patting us lovingly whenever we got near her. When life whittled her down to her essence, all there was left was love. Love for God and love for people. You know, you probably can think of individuals like that if you have watched others age and as you think about yourself growing older, you sometimes wonder what you will be like in your old age. What will you be like? What have you cultivated over a lifetime that you hope comes out in the end? Whom will we serve? And finally, Jesus asks the question, what are we worried about in verses 25 to 34? Let me read this part for us. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Do not worry. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what will you wear. For how many people is that really what life boils down to, that they are concerned about those kind of things and all of life is focused trying to make ends meet or to have that kind of provision? Jesus says, don't worry about that. He's not saying don't work. Yes, we are to work and we are to trust Him in the midst of those situations that are trying that He will provide for us. And why do we do that? Why does Jesus say don't worry? He wants us to remember that God cares for us. He cares for you and me. And by the illustrations he has here, you know, imagine they were sitting on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in a beautiful slope uh, looking down toward the sea and there were birds flying about and there were flowers, lilies in the field. And he points to those things that they can see with their own eyes and he's saying, you know, I mean, why are you worried? Look at the birds. They don't sow. They don't reap or store away in barns. Yet your God, your Father in heaven, feeds them and takes care of them. And are you not more valuable than they? Will not the same God who gave you life give you the food you need to sustain it? And he tells us too that worry really profits nothing. I mean, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? On the contrary, our worrying may shorten our life. Our stress, our anxiety, the tension that we feel or that anxious feeling may work against us. Will not the same God who clothes the lilies of the field also provide for you? Remember that our ultimate security is in God. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Again, Jesus is telling us, you know, that God knows what we need even before we ask Him. And yet He wants us to come to Him in prayer and bring those needs. Because as we said last week, prayer is about developing this relationship with God. He wants us to come as a child comes to his Father and ask and seek His need. We are to come knocking on the door of heaven and trusting God to open those doors. The call here is for us to put God first in our life. Jesus tells us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Again, Jesus isn't saying here that we aren't going to have burdens in life or that there won't be times when we are anxious. He's not saying that as Christians we're not you know, going to have trouble in our life. No, we will. Jesus said that, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so here is Jesus offering a different way to live. We as believers will experience all of the ups and downs that go along in our world. We'll experience the challenges and the trials that other people do. But there's to be a difference in us because of Christ. A peace, a joy, a security that comes from God. The issue is not having problems. The issue is what we do with them. Where do we take them? And where should we take our worries? What should we do with them? We should bring them to Jesus. 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when we do that, the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Peace, perfect peace, is what He can give. So what are you worried about this Christmas? What are the things that would be on your list? Is it money or kids or marriage or work or health needs? Bring them to Jesus and lay them at His feet. The challenge that Jesus is giving here is really a challenge to put God first and to keep Him first in our life. There's so many things that can distract us or pull away at our attention or our time that we need to keep coming back to that to say, okay, here I am, Lord. I want to serve you today. The best way that I know to keep Christ first, to keep Christ the center of our life, is to put Him first in our day, to start our day in prayer with Him, start our day in the Word. It's to put Him first in our week as we do when we gather to worship and to come and to hear His Word taught. We're to put Him first in our giving. It's a reminder that everything I have is a gift from Him. So I give back to the Lord. I give of those first fruits. Or we tithe what we have been given as a way of saying, Lord, thank You. You are Lord of all that I have. And we put Him first in our work. Remembering the words of Scripture that everything we do is to be done as unto the Lord. Because it's the Lord Christ we are serving. This Christmas, the very best gift that we could give to Jesus is a life that is fully devoted to Him. And you may have done that before in the past where you have made that kind of commitment, but maybe today the time is right to say once again, Father, forgive me for what I have done or forgive me for my anxious thoughts and help me, Lord, to trust in You. I want to put You first in my life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to You this morning, this is a passage of Scripture that again sounds so good. Sounds so good. Worry-free living. Father, I pray that increasingly that would be our experience. That we would learn to trust You more and more like little children. That we would love You and rely upon You and see that You are the one who has blessed us with all that we have. I pray that gratitude and joy would fill our hearts, that there would be that peace that passes all understanding, because You are a provider, You are a God, and You are faithful to the end. Lord, You know the challenges that each one of us face in our life, and we just bring those to You today. And we reaffirm our commitment to You, and we ask Jesus, Would you be Lord of our life and Lord of all that we do? In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we close our service? Mark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King.
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves us and by his grace has given us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.